Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. <laughs> I think uh, if, if Henley comes down to well, me being Boris, him, you can just say, yeah, sod off, Boris. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll run down the towpath. First one who gets back to the, back to the uh, town hall can have the seat. I'll, I'll take him on every okay. day, any distance. Hello and welcome to the Red Lion Pub in Westminster. I'm Christopher Hope, chopper to my pals, associate editor for politics at the Daily Telegraph. And this is Chopper's Politics Podcast. The battle lines over next year's general election are slowly taking shape over Brexit, housing and immigration. But increasingly, the election looks like it's Labour's to lose. With me on this week's podcast, we'll be hearing from Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser on why she thinks all is not lost for the Tories. And from Rob Burley, one of the most experienced political producers in broadcasting, on why political TV interviews are often so unilluminating. Present company accepted, of course. But first, this week, former Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack became the 35th Conservative MP to say they will not fight the next general election. But not all Tories are so gloomy about the party's prospects at Westminster. Former Olympic rower James Cracknell has thrown his hat into the ring to become an MP, possibly in Henley-upon-Thames. Very appropriate for a rower. He joins me now in the Red Lion pub. James Cracknell, Olympic hero, rowing legend. Why on earth do you want to be a Conservative MP? Well, I think in terms of being in, in politics at all, I was very lucky to be you know, supported by the National Lottery. And yep. you, know, you go to ceremonies and you know, thanking the lottery, and you're there alongside other people, other recipients, who all are doing selfless things. And I stood there as an anomaly being the selfish that you, know, you are doing it yes you know, the country really gets pleasure out of people winning the olympics but you're doing it for yourself and your teammates and a lot is made of legacy and actually, yes yeah it's brilliant people take up sport and be physically active but the best way of having you know, any form of legacy is to be involved in yeah. in driving policy a friend's dad once said to me he goes uh, you go very fast in the boat backwards i suppose that's useful and that, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's only, uh, when you're you know, celebrated for going very fast in the boat backwards, it makes me actually you should have more contribution. Yeah, yeah. What's the appeal right now? If the Tories win the election, it's their fifth successive election victory. It looks unlikely looking at the polling. So you'll be entering maybe a period of opposition and you can't do anything in opposition. Why now? Isn't your timing a bit wrong? 
Well, in terms of my personal motivation has, has been about public health and, and preventative healthcare. And my mum worked in NHS and actually yeah. for the benefit of, of the whole of society, I believe the NHS needs to, to shift focus to actually stop people getting ill. And that involves spending to save. And it's going to be a generational change, not within. So it's a not about being term. in government, it's about being, in, being an MP to use a platform to make that change. And that, yeah, that was my initial driver to get involved. Well, what would you bring to your party if you enter, if you become an MP and enter parliament? I think that actually the things that I've learned through my life in, in sport and things I've done afterwards about discipline, commitment, working in a team, dealing with pressure, setting a high agenda and working towards it, I think those are things that that have been lost mm. and actually that's the thing that i can i'm not gonna sit here and say i'm a policy expert okay, on everything yeah. what i i absolutely am not afraid to challenge not afraid to be challenged and i will hold people to account and discipline the commitment and seeing it through and the one thing that i've always done taking sport that our aim was to to win a gold medal that's binary so second we'd failed mm. third we'd failed fourth and that second third fourth fifth it made no difference whether it was any of those all of them had failed to achieve our objective. And that, I think, is, is something that I, would be a benefit to a constituency and a party in the country. How do you think the public might see you? I think the one difficulty, which is not just from, from a sporting perspective, I think it's one of the things that in, in Britain we're not so good at, is we're very quick to pigeonhole people. And so they'll be like, a sportsman, you're in a box, and therefore you can't jump out of that box into politics. It's the same as an actor wants to be a politician, they'll find it hard, or an actual wants to be a many. singer. I mean, you think of Seb Coe, of course. It's really, it's really interesting having a conversation with Seb Coe about it, mm-hmm. from his time when he, he, fought his, he fought, fought it for the first time, and the challenges involved in winning over an association, the difficulty in trying to retain the seat when, when Tony Blair came to power, it was not yeah. the greatest no. election for the Conservatives, and just the different perceptions. And for him, it was, again, he was the, the guy who had run, then he stepped away. And having that profile meant that he was, all, you know, it suddenly went between, he was the runner, then he was William Hayes' judo partner. Yeah. And yeah, it, yeah. it's a belittled. And then yeah. he flicks around to putting on the Olympics that everyone said was going to be a failure. Yeah. And yeah. then present the IAAF. And so he, he gave me the, the honest objective of the, the highs are high and the, and the lows are really difficult. Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting <laughs> things he told me was that he was going around associations and he was you know, in the lead up to getting selected and then building the association base to, to get elected for the first time. And he thought he'd done a really good speech and he was in the car with his political agent afterwards who kind of, sort of read the room for him. And he was like, you know, well, they wish you'd worn a tie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just that, that you, you are going to, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Is, you cannot control in. Well, you're not in, wearing one now. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what uh, who have you met in, in, in the party? You've met... You know, what's, what's been really pleasurable about this process is, and it's not what I expected, I've never been in sport or business, is I, I really like the way Johnny Mercer comes across on Twitter. And I dropped him an email saying, would it be possible to come and meet you and, and just talk about, yeah. you know, how to get selected? It was yes. And then Steve Barkley, can I drop him an email possible to talk? Yes. And, and it's really interesting that in, a, in the right way you think people, you know, the perception from the outside, maybe politicians all in for themselves. They've been incredibly giving. Well, they want new voices. They want new faces in, in, in the Troy party, as far as I can make out, because everyone's very familiar with the cast of this at the moment. So, so why Henley on Thames, apart from the 14,000 Tory majority at last election? 
I think, look, let's be honest, represent anywhere is a, is a huge honour. And there's far, far more candidates than, than there are seats. And also, you know, you've got a number of um, the current <laughs> sitting yeah. MPs maybe worried that they're not going to be in their seats. So it's a hugely competitive place. But, you know, Henley, for me, you know, I started Rather when I was 18. I lived in Henley when I got married. My first child was born there. And, you know, my personal and professional highs have been, been based yeah. around the town. And I've so, got so many friends there, both in the businesses in Henley, but also on the sporting side but the reality is Henley may be the name of the constituency but if I was in Tame or Watlington or Chinner I would be going he'll be in it for Henley he's not in it for us you know so that's if I'm going to have any chance there I've got to go around and and spend the time and meet people and find out yeah. what they really want from from their MP because and do you live there do you or you live in no I live in in West London at the moment but what I live there yeah yeah, yeah, and you feel a tap on the shoulder and it's a blonde former Prime Minister saying clear off crack and I want my seat back what would you say? I would say you're going to have bigger people to worry about than me. I, I think <laughs> if, if Henley comes down to well, me, you're bigger than Boris, him because you're saying yeah. sod off, Boris. We'll, uh, yeah, we we'll, we'll run down the towpath. First one who gets back to back to the uh, town hall can have the seat. I'll, I'll take him on every okay. day, any distance. <laughs> Just ask you about your policy. Are you a low tax Tory? Do you want to cut taxes? Are they too high? I think the uh, the moment I would say the taxation and the cost of living crisis are closely aligned I, I think what taxation from, from my perspective seems to you know, it acts as a as a, a break and on the economy just yeah on the economy of people's productivity and it's so it, it leads to, to inertia but the armed force the nhs the police the fire service and then it's a sliding scale to what you think taxation should contribute to mm. and then you need to work out how you're going to to generate that income are they too high at the moment I think corporation tax, I would look at that as a way of solving it. I think in terms of getting people flowing, would VAT benefit from being being trimmed a bit? I think we, I think we, to well, make... Outside, outside the EU, we can do that. I, I think um, if you want Britain to appear to be a, a country to invest in, then corporation, putting corporation tax up now with mm. the combination of the cost of living crisis is not good. And income tax? There, I would say that there's a... You read enough about 40% being the one where the the demotivating factor comes in. Uh, I, I interviewed um, Tony Jacklin. Oh, the golfer. When they, yeah, when he saw the Telegraph. And he, when he won the US Open, he was saying that... that 69, was it? Yeah. Like, well, every, every eight pounds of every 10 went to the tax man and then yeah. he moved abroad. Yeah. And that, that's... So, we're nowhere near that. We're nowhere that. But that's the... It, it, at some point, everyone has their threshold. Yeah, yeah. Have you, have you, have you met Rishi Sunak? No. And what's he doing right and wrong? You, you think he's doing Okay. Yeah, I think he is doing. He over what he inherited and when he took over the state he did. He absolutely. Mm. It, you know, he's, he's half Labour's poll lead, but Labour are still seventeen points ahead, aren't they? They're still a long way away. They're a long way away, but you're, you know, the reality is, when I, when I was doing sport, it's much harder to be a champion than an underdog. And right now we're the underdog, and you got to you got to call them in, hold them in, and. Mm. Everyone watched the Grand National and you think with one furlong to go, this horse is miles okay. out of the lead and they start bottling it and, and you never know. Look, hey, and at this you, point... You can win, win an action? You know, at, win. The, at this point, over the last year, I would have thought Kirsten would be further ahead. Yes. That, that, so that means, okay, hang on. So either he's playing a very good game and not wanting to be too much of a front runner or actually we're doing something right. Well, he's a, he's a lucky leader, so he's lost... But Boris Johnson, Nicholas Sturgeon of Scotland, and the left has disappeared. Corbyn's been kicked out. Diane Abbott. I mean, it's all the oppo has fallen away. Has that Yes, but then if your lead's getting chewed back, and you've 
had the perfect storm of all the, the major characters going, people would be going, hang on, mm. have you got it? And the Tories can win election next year? Absolutely. I think, look, it's... Will they? Firstly, you get do the things right that the, the five things that Richard laid out, get yeah, them right. Yeah, and then yeah. you got, you're batting on having achieved something. I think there's real reputational wins to be done with strikes and votes in the channel. Those are reputational wins that, that will do a huge amount. And, and what, what is it the party to you? Are you a Thatcherite Tory? I, I, you know, I was born in 72, so I grew up, you know, when that, my first memory of her was... 79. It was, was being Prime Minister. And she was still Prime Minister when, when I went to university. Yeah. Admittedly, she only lasted three weeks into my first term of university before she got replaced. In, in terms of what makes me a conservative, I would say is that it's a party that allows and supports people to do what they want and gives them the freedom to do it and is there if it doesn't work. And whereas you know, Labour especially, they're more tell you what to do mm. and just let it out that way. And, and those, that's the... And that's what drives you towards the Tories, yeah, the idea that you've left alone. I've, I've set my target and I will do everything I can to achieve it. They take the brakes off, you know, rather than throwing sort of sand in the gears, yeah. that, which is done with too much legislation and too much, you know, not using the yeah. free market. Is your mum still working in NHS or is she... No, she's, she's retired. Although I broke what? my wrist a few weeks ago and uh, she was full of advice for that. She was my physio. <laughs> Where do you stand on the strikes, the, the nurses striking and the NHS workers striking? And, and look, first, I, I definitely agree with the, the right to strike. I think the... But the pay rise, the money they want? I think the, the most important is to look at why there is the lack of doctors, why people are leaving the profession, the lack of nurses. I think it's, it's, with the problem, you've got to look at the cause of... Yeah, what, what overwork, long hours, yeah. difficult so I think that's, that, that's working conditions, it, money. It being solved is actually... You know, we need to make positive action on... You know, a pay rise, James, to be to pin you down? No, I think, yes. I think, look, everyone's been having you know, this cost of living. I, I would, yes, the pay rise, but then at what point does it then inflict on everyone else? And it's... In terms of inflation and the rest? I don't know enough about whether it's the right... No. What figure it is, but do they deserve more? Yes, but there'd be infinite number of professions that say the same. And, and you've got to be careful. Now, I don't think that... You know, the rail strikes, that doing it to really convince people. I, you know, the, how many people that they get support from benefit if, you know, cancelling trains by the, on the day of the FA Cup final when, when two teams come down from Manchester. There's things that it's actually, you're gonna, it's going to get pushed back, but everyone deserves a fair wage. Yeah, yeah. You, you had a very bad injury, didn't you, uh, when you were hit by a lorry in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, that's a huge thing you've dealt with there. How are you doing now? No, no, really good now. Really good now. And actually... It's interesting, you know, just talking about the NHS, is the, um, I was in, it happened when I was in America and I got helicoptered to hospital in America, had you know, lots of treatment there. And then there was a big argument about insurance and, and everything. The insurance company, the guy that hit me, his insurance company covered the stay in America and it was agreed that I'll cover the stay in the UK. Six weeks in America, a month here. And the bill that we had to pay was £79 for Wi-Fi. <laughs> and the the, theirs was eight hundred thousand. Okay, theirs was a helicopter as well, but it was over eight hundred thousand pounds, and that—that's the difference. And that's, and then, the NHS, and, well, that, and that's where it goes back to the fair pay, and so it, and the nurses are amazing. And you know, I and do you know what? It's really interesting. I broke my wrist about five weeks ago, and I went into and I was in, in a real pain, and and they were amazing there. And I went back. I had to have an operation three days later. But I went back and with some just for Easter with some Easter eggs and biscuits just to leave at A and E and say thank you. And I went to reception. I go, can I go to the end and, and leave these? And they're like, why do you want to do that? Mm-hmm. So I just want to say thank you. And actually, it was the 
it was such an unusual thing mm. for someone to come that it was, yes, we're yeah. really happy to go outside and clap, but actually just meet someone face to face and then say, thank mm. you. It was, it was, it was on treated with suspicion rather than what should be a normality. And comes more thank yous. Than yes, more thank yous. And that does, you know, that comes from the way we, we treat them when we meet them, the way we support them yeah. you know, in their pay claims. I'm afraid the Telegraph in 2019 did say that you were ticking all the boxes of a spectacular midlife crisis. I'm sorry about this. You got a tattoo, apparently, and you rode a motorbike. Well, I've rode a motorbike since I was 19. I've had a tattoo since I was 19. So that's, yeah. Um, this isn't one, is the point. Being a Tory MP isn't a, a midlife crisis, James. Well, I, no, I mean, in terms of, I don't know how long midlife crisis lasts. But Be honest, I, been I, came, I came on, you know, first one on the Candice in 2013. So yeah, it's been right. a decade-long midlife crisis. So, it's a, you know, but they, you know, people have, you know, midlife is a, is a long period of time, I think. Yeah. And... Unlike most careers, if you are, say, a sportsman, is that m- my career highlight was when I was 28, 32, won the Olympics then. Yeah. And then do I go on and do another one? And then you know, I, I could have carried on. I felt if I carried on and I was in my mid-30s, I would only ever be a rower. And I felt it was something I did rather than who I am. And then the question you get asked most is, what are you doing now? And actually... Nothing feels, at, because that's been my, was my focus for you know, 15 years, nothing seems as worthwhile in your head. Whereas representing a constituency, a party, and trying to help you know, preventative healthcare is worth it. If you lose, then what? If you don't become an MP, then what? I, I, if I was racing, if I trained well, prepared well, and raced you know, flat out, and we lost, I'd hold my hands up and say, not good enough. So yes. if I get to the end of the situation and yes. I've, you know, I have been the best version of myself, I have met everyone in the constituency and I have been given the best account and prepared and had the best team around me and lose, then... Yeah. You know, have you thought about a run for London Mayor? There were always a selecting a candidate this summer. I got the email for, through for you're well the known. approved list. You're well known. Um, I, Charismatic. Well, that's I right. handsome, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Chap. <laughs> you can grow up and down the Thames on that hail and vote for me. Come well, on. You should have been part of my team when I, when I got divorced. <laughs> Charismatic and handsome. Where was that? Um, no, look, it's going to go for it. The one thing that I have been really good at is. That's well, not I'm, a no, is it? No, well, well it, it kind of is. If I'm doing something, it's focusing yeah, of on a one target. And if you know, there's a lot of seats going to be selected between now and the party conference in October. So I would say splitting my focus on two things would not benefit either. Also, so you thought about it. I thought about, you know, if there's a benefit to getting people knowing you're into politics, hmm. you know, if I did put my name to the mayor, I would get, okay, he's interested in politics, but I think it would lose focus. And I think that's really insulting to seats where I'll be applying to that actually, yes. do you want us or do you want yes. to be mayor of London? So that's a no, isn't it? It's a no, yeah. Well, James Cracknell, prospective MP, maybe next year. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. James Cracknell there. Right, do say with us, listeners. Coming up, we'll hear from one of broadcasting's most experienced political producers on how to get the most from an interview with a politician. And they'll reveal also which feared TV interviewer once read a speech for the Prime Minister of the day, one Margaret Thatcher, right after this.
Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. <laughs> Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Now, it's been a busy few weeks for the UK's cultural sector, with the Coronation and Eurovision Song Contest on successive weekends. Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser has been at the heart of the drama, and she thinks the UK's leadership in soft power is something to shout about. So, Lucy Fraser, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Are you used to Red Line Pub? Are you a denizen here? I've been here a couple of times, I must say, yes. Do you plot I'm not, here? I'm you not plot? a regular. I'm not a plotter. I'm no. not a plotter. No, no. You get know, on with the job. Get on with the job. And you're making a speech today, haven't you, about the creative industries and the importance yes. of it and jobs. Yes. yes. Jobs, creativity, world-class yeah. sector. Yeah. It's, I'm so lucky to represent this sector. It's just a fabulous sector. Well, it's the best job in government, isn't it? That's what they told me, and they're absolutely right, yes. You spent the last few weeks, you've been at the Coronation, at the yeah. Eurovision, I'm sure you were there, at Windsor for the concert. I mean, it's quite a time. I've had an amazing week. I mean, as you say, the Coronation, yeah. which, you know, my department were responsible for doing the coordination. Yeah. So amazing to do that. And then, of course, Eurovision the following week, but it's just so fabulous. The you two know, sides to- of Britain, right? Heritage and, and Eurovision and looking at Yeah, outwards. heritage tradition in terms of the Coronation, mm. you know, modernity, first class. Yeah. BBC content, but both bringing, actually, interestingly, both international events in different ways and putting Britain on the world stage. So, you know, the coronation, we had 200 foreign dignitaries here, had 6,000 people accredited in terms of press accreditation. So that was Britain on the world stage showing tradition. And then a week later, obviously, you know, on behalf of Ukraine, so very poignant. So it's not just about the competition and the creativity and the huge music talent that we have, but also about how we are standing with Ukraine on the international stage, also seen by 160 million people. We do all quite well, don't we? Why do you think people have a down on this country who are here? Is it a left-wing thing, suspicious of heritage and pomp and circumstance? I think we undersell ourselves as a country. You know, it's that great British understatement. You know, we're always looking at ourselves and, you know, not thinking we're quite good enough, not talking ourselves up. Whereas actually, I think we're perceived to be world-class. You know, people are often looking to us and saying, well, how should you do this? You know, how can we be like you? In the industries I represent, people want to be at the forefront of the creative industries in other countries. South Korea is trying to copy what we do in terms of music. So I think sometimes we undersell ourselves. You know, there's a little bit of navel gazing, unfortunately. And I think we should just promote and be proud to be British. Yeah. 
Is it linked to taxation, do you think? I mean, it needs to be more tax breaks for the creative industries. There that, are significant tax breaks. Is for that the enough? Creative. So the reason, one of the reasons why the creative industries are so successful and world leading is because of the uh, tax breaks. You know, George Osborne, Conservative mm. government, brought in quite a lot of tax breaks for the creative industries. And I was really proud and pleased that one of the first things that happened when I became the Secretary of State was we got some further tax breaks. We got tax reliefs uh, that were continuing in a whole range of my sectors because the Chancellor recognised that that was the right thing to do to ensure that we maintained our position Mm. on the world stage. Because we mustn't be complacent. It's huge international competition and we need to keep ahead at every stage. We mentioned our heritage there, didn't we, Lucy Fraser? Where do you stand on slavery reparations and is it something which the government could do more on? Uh, Overall, we should be proud of our history. Obviously, in that I don't mean slavery. I just mean, you know, we... Uh, should be a proud nation and we should understand our history and where we have come from. We should explain our history so that we understand for, for the future. I think we can't whitewash what has happened in the past. I think we only learn if we acknowledge and explain and then go forward. Obviously, reparations is you know slightly distinct from that, but I think overall, I don't agree with whitewashing history. Issues of those all, all areas like the Elgin Marbles, the British Museum. I mean, should they go back? That's currently being discussed by the chairman of the museum there, George Osborne. It is, and I've met George uh, on a number of occasions. As I mentioned, my starting point is that we have a history that we should explain. And the Elgin marbles are here in the British Museum for the world to see. You know, one in five people who comes to the UK visits the British Museum. The particular decision about, you know, whether the Elgin marbles should go back is a matter for the trustees of the British Museum. But the the law is they legally can't and we have have absolutely no intention of changing the law. But how the British Museum, you know, works within that is a is a question for the trustees. Yeah. Um, And more widely then, you want us to be more celebratory of our culture here. Do you think there's a natural crouch in this country you want to get rid of? Definitely. You know, I think we should be so proud to be British and we should be celebrating that, whether that's our history, whether it's, you know, our present. And I think we should be shouting about it on the world stage. And it's not happening at the moment because there's a kind of embarrassment, is there, about it? I think it's just British reservedness. (laughs) Uh, I do think we do it, but I think we could do it even more. This is looking at the BBC, there's lots of talk about why the government appoints a chairman of the BBC. Are you think that's, that's right, the way it's structured at the moment? I think what we need to do in this process is make sure we get the right person for the job. There is a process, actually, I think little understood. The BBC Charter sets out the process, so we, the government, will be following the process that's set out in the Charter. Should Labour have a say? Because there might be an election. You wrinkle your eyebrows there. Only I'm because not it, sure why Labour should have a say. Well, this is an appointment of the BBC with yes. a fair and open competition. we will be uh, embarking upon and we will choose the right person for the job. And there is a process which is set out in the Charter. It's also, you know, a lot of public appointments are made through various governments, Labour and Conservative, which set out the procedure and that's the procedure we'll be following. Historically, it's been someone who's... And you just suggest that. I think you were going on to say, and you know, Labour, government, you know... Well, I was going to say, because the polls are suggesting Labour might win next election, you could make it a cross-party appointment. That's what I was going to say. I know you don't like that because you're a Tory politician. (laughs) Who says Labour's? I mean, you know, I think think, there's a long way to go to the next election. Yes. Should Tories be suspicious of the BBC or not? Or is it just overblown? So the BBC has a fundamental role in respecting impartiality. It's a public service broadcaster Mm. and it should be impartial in its content. And I think the director of the general of the BBC 
understands that. We're doing a midterm review at the moment on impartiality. It's paid for by the licence fee payer. And it's really important that it produces good British content that British people want to see, and it should absolutely be impartial. Yeah. One issue that kind of frustrates Telegraph readers and listeners of the podcast is the way that charities pursue maybe political objectives, which are maybe at odds with where some of their donors are, the supporters are. Where do you sit with that? So charities do huge amounts of work, probably asking me because charities fall within my portfolio. Mm, And I think we should celebrate the massive amount they do on a local level. They are absolutely fundamental. Through COVID, they are absolutely fundamental. They do amazing work. And as you say, your readers, you know, millions of people across the country are volunteering Mm. for fantastic organisations that are the bedrock of our society. But when you're a charity... You cannot support a political party. Mm. And I think that is right. And I don't think individuals want their charity to whom they're giving money to be taking a political positions in party terms. They may, of course, campaign for the cause that they represent, but they shouldn't be getting involved in politics in the purest sense of the word. And that's quite a hard line to follow, isn't it? Because I guess we're going to an election period too. You have notably charities criticising the government's migrant policy, for example, which may overset the mark in some eyes. Yes, I think the uh, head of the Charity Commission is quite rightly rightly said that there's this legal line that they need to draw and they should, of course, they can share views on their campaign issues, but they Mm. cannot support or go against, you know, get into the political arena of a particular political party. Because giving charity isn't really a political thing. You do it because you believe in a cause, not that you don't have that... Yes, absolutely. Most people think they're helping people. That's Mm. what people want to do when they donate to a charity, whether that's a domestic charity or an international charity. They think they are supporting people or creating a better world. How have you found this week in conservative politics? Have you watching this National Conservative Conference? No, I think it's great that we have debate uh, yeah. in the country. I'm, I'm, as you know, also within my department, falls the media. And I think I'm proud to be in a democracy where we can debate issues. So good to have a debate. But as a party, what we're doing is getting on and delivering. I think what people want to see yeah. us do is deliver and change their lives. And that is what the government and me are focused on. And what drives your politics? Are you a Thatcherite? Is it family values? What drives I'm driven by a feeling that we should be empowering people to stand on their own two feet. I believe that everybody is fundamentally capable of, and everybody has holds a huge amount of potential, and it's different potential. Everybody does something different. And I believe that we, as a government, should be supporting them to fulfil their potential, to live the life that they want to live. So it's about life. For me, it's about life opportunities. Life chances. Life chances and opportunities. And for me, that's what conservatism is so all about. you want the government to move away from people's lives and let them get on with it? I want them to empower them. So government has a role in supporting people. I was the Minister for Youth Justice and I saw how sometimes uh, people fall down the cracks and people don't make the right decisions and we have a role as a government to help them get back onto the right track. Mm. Uh, But once we have done that, I think we should let them get on with their lives and have the freedom to operate how they wish, and we should interfere as little as possible in their lives going forward. What made you want to become an MP when you were a successful QC, weren't you, in Chambers? Because I always wanted to make a difference. So when I left university, you know when you're really young 
Um, we were just saying before how old we both are. <laughs> and uh, when you're really young, you think you're going to save the world. And mm. I had that sort of naive ambition that I was Not going nice. to save ambition. the world. Yes. And I went to work for a number of organisations when after university, I took a year off to work for a number of organisations that I thought were key instigators of change. So I spent a little bit of time uh, at the UN. I worked for the European Commission. I actually worked to Ministry of Justice in another country. And I was really disappointed because I realised that when you're 21 in your list, like this tiny cog in this huge wheel, you can't make any change. So my grandma was a barrister. I'd always wanted to be a barrister since I was about seven. So I went to the bar. To help people, I suppose, or present well, the best cases for people. Well, I was a commercial lawyer and I worked in insolvency. So oh, right, was, me. But to get people's voices heard in the best possible way. But I never really lost that desire mm. to make a difference. And I thought, well, I looked into different ways of doing it. So I actually applied, for example, to be a commissioner on the Social Mobility Commission. Did you? I didn't get it. Did you? Uh, I had absolutely and, no skills and for that. How life works out. And then one day it just occurred to me that actually the best way and biggest way that you can make a difference is to be an MP. And there are lots of disadvantages to being an MP, but I thought that's the biggest way you can make a difference. How do you cope with the disadvantages of it? The imposition on your private family life? How do you do it? You just get on with it. You just get on with it. And, you know, it's such a privilege to be an MP. I do feel that you can help on every level, an individual level, a regional level, a national level, and the counterbalance to all the aggro that you know we get, the counterbalance of the ability to change people's lives, to get things done, to make a difference. You know, we are just so lucky and privileged to be able to do that. And this is finally the election next year. Yep. You're going to win? Of course. I don't How are you so sure when you're well, 17 points so, behind these Yeah, so, 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 so that was a little bit flippant, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> look, I'm an optimist and I think that obviously as a Conservative and as an MP, I think that we have the right approach to government. So I want us to win. I think that what we need to do is to show people that we can deliver. And I think once we have done that, and I think we're on track to do that, I think then we earn the right for people to listen to what we've got to say. And I think that, I mean, I saw a shift. I was obviously campaigning in the local elections. We actually held our council. It remained concept against Lib Dems. And I saw a change in the way people were approaching the Conservatives. You know, at the beginning, uh, not so, you know, angry and disappointed. But I think that we're earning the right for people to listen to us. So so I'm I'm optimistic, but absolutely not complacent about the outcome. Well, Lucy Fraser, Culture Secretary, thank you for joining us this week for Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Lucy Fraser there. Now, why is that lying bastard lying to me was famously the phrase BBC Newsnight presenter Jeremy Paxman used to describe his approach to TV interviewing. And it's also the title of a new book by top TV political producer Rob Burley. Rob has worked with the big political interview beasts of the age, Jeremy Paxman, of course, Andrew Neil and Emily Maitlis, to name but a few. So I asked Rob to join me in the Red Lion pub to share some tips. Rob Burley, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast here in the Red Lion Pub. I'm sure you've been here a few times. I have actually, uh, not not for a few years. I used to come here when I was a researcher. I used to work for a Labour MP called Paul Flynn, late Paul Flynn, a lovely man. He was a great man. He was the thorn in Blair's side, wasn't he? For yeah. So in those days I used to come, but actually I make a bit of a point in the book. Once I was doing stuff at the BBC and ITV before that, I didn't really do much socialising with 
special advisors or politicians, really. I sort of somehow didn't really sit well with me. No, you wanted to be a part. Yeah. Your book's called Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? Are you happy with that title? It's quite a cynical title about politics, isn't it? I am happy with it because it's a great title, Chris. Come on, that's, that's the well, it's a famous quote from yeah. uh, Jeremy Paxton yeah. to, to the media show or something when he was starting out on Newsnight. Yeah, the, the point about it is it's, it's a great title because it just is a good title. But also, um, I think that it means something, which is that it invites you to kind of engage in that question about how politicians and the media interact with each other. And it was mm. made by, or you know, it was actually an old quote recycled by Jeremy Paxman, you know, one of the premier political interviews of all time, who yes. I work with quite closely. So. Mm. It has got a rude word in it, and it yeah. might seem a bit cynical, but it's not me saying they're all lying bastards. No. That Lucy Fraser, the culture secretary on this podcast, and she was talking about how she wants to help people stand on their own two feet who can't. And so from, from their point of view, they come at it from a kind of noble position, don't they? Politicians. They're, yes, they don't think they're lying bastards, do they? No, no. And I think I actually don't think that most of them are doing this for bad reasons at all, not, not, not for a moment. I think actually the opposite is true. But, but they it, can't be truthful all the time, is your point. Yeah, they choose to speak in a particular way. They choose to, I mean, obviously, look, it's not, it's, it's, this is a two-way street. What I would like to see is some kind of new relationship where we can actually have meaningful conversations rather than just defensive ones. But it does require them to move as well as the media. There have been intermittent moments where the media, you know, I remember Ian Katz, who was, when I was at Newsnight, after, shortly after I left, he tried to reset the relationship. But it was a bit like unilateral disarmament, really. Newsnight gave up their weapons. The government and the politicians shot them anyway. Yes. You know, because is, they is it our fault, though? The term gotcha question is now used used on Twitter, isn't it, to attack journalism? Oh, that's a gotcha question. I'm almost to disregard the question. But a gotcha question is trying to get some revelatory moment from the politician, isn't it? Yeah, it's trying to find something out. I mean, one of the interviews I was most sort of happy to be involved with, and it was quite famous, was Boris Johnson in the 2019 leadership election, if you may remember, when he was asked, talking about the GATT agreement, talking about yes. Paragraph 5B, because he knew about Paragraph 5B. Our question in our meetings before that was, does he know anything about 5C? <laughs> and we suspected he probably didn't. Now, that isn't a gotcha because it's not just there only to actually create embarrassment. It's there to reveal something about a sort of superficial understanding that we suspected he had. And he had to admit on air that he didn't know what was in 5C. So is that a gotcha? I wouldn't say so. Now, in your time, you've worked with Andrew Marr, Andrew Neil, Jeremy Paxman, and he made this and goes back in your book goes back further than that into, you know, Brian Walden, the, mm. the great political interviewer of the 80s, uh, Sir Robin Day, about how they developed the idea and the question to ask. You talk about the, the famous John Knott interview when yes. he walked out and the way it was phrased, you know, that, that, was, that was after the Falklands War. I mean, you yes. tell the story. So I'm a kid. In the 70s and 80s, uh, there was not much on telly. <laughs> Right, yes. you know, there were, there three, were, four channels. Yeah, so we got, we got four channels in 1982. I'd watch anything. I was just watching it. So I'd find myself watching impenetrable editions of Weekend World at the age of sort of 10. On Sunday mornings. On Sunday mornings. But I remember this moment vividly because it was that moment when the artifice of government and power fell away because John Knott, who was then the defence secretary, who was about to leave the Commons. So I say in the book, he, was, he wasn't so much demob happy as demob grumpy as he walked into that room. He sits down with the Grand Inquisitor, Sir Robin Day, to talk about cuts to the Navy, which was quite an emotive thing to do in months after the triumph in the South Atlantic. Mm. And in that interview, Robin Day, in his wonderful style, describes not as a here today, and if I may say so, gone tomorrow <laughs> politician. <laughs> that, and I, so what I try and recreate in the book is just the way that he does that, yes. the way that it feels for Knott, and then not sort of pushes himself out of his chair, has a look around, because you need to know where the exit is if you're going to storm off. Sees <laughs> <laughs> where and ch chucks that microphone back at, at Sir Robin Day and leaves. And, and yes. Knott, I think, has a bit of a difficult relationship with this reality, which is that whatever he did, he had a very you know, impressive career as a defence secretary in a, in a war, the thing that people will remember mm. is that he walked out into Robin Day, 
And that kind of question, the if I may say so point, yeah. which you leap on in the book, is the moment of maximum yeah. impact. Is that scripted or is that just him, do you think? I, mean, I think not, with, you, you weren't in his no, ear. I wasn't in his ear, but I would imagine with, with, with Day, that was him. Mm. He, you know, he was an acerbic character. He was a very mm. clever man mm. and he understood theatre. This is the thing. Yeah. Theatre is really important in political interviews. And that is theatre walking out, but it doesn't tell us much. I mean, had not stayed there and answered the question, whatever it was, I can't remember the question now, of course. Well, the question was about, he was very unhappy that Sir Robin was suggested, was in a way trying to create a division between him and the, and people from the services who were obviously briefing the papers that they were unhappy about the cuts that were being planned. And I think, what does it tell us? I suppose what it told me as a young person was that politicians are people. They'll get pissed off, pardon my French. They'll get annoyed. <laughs> they will leave sometimes. They'll walk out. And things can happen that are not the sort of controlled way that we always have. Mm. And I think that's quite a moment. Do you want moments in interviews or yeah. do you want information in interviews? You want both. I mean, I don't, I don't think the moments are of any value. And like the Boris Johnson moment I, I described to you about 5B and 5C only has value because it's meaningful. Okay, so It shows he's not cross detail. Yeah, and that was the point. And that was one of the great concerns about him. Was that borne out? Perhaps it was, you know. So I think what you don't want to do is just see, because what we see now, you see, is we have, what, five to seven minute interviews on the telly? The interviewers are too often seeking moments just without any kind of depth to it or time given to that it. That involves interruption, doesn't yes, it? Yes, too much interruption. Which, is that annoy you now? Now you're out left the BBC, can you say that? Of course. No, I think I think it's not just the BBC. I think interruption it, you know, can be a problem. But I think actually for viewers and listeners, they probably dislike not answering the question more than they dislike interruption. I mean, mm. they, they dislike both of those things, but it's not answering the question that I think is the most problematic thing of those things. Mm. You mentioned in the book, of course, the famous interview with Michael Howard and Jeremy Paxman. Yes. When it was about Derek Lewis from memory and this whether Derek Lewis knew something or didn't know something. And he kept asking the same question over and over again. And Paxman mm-hmm. said since then, hasn't he, that he couldn't think of what to else to ask him. So he kept asking the same question. Yeah, but I think Jeremy, he sort of wrapped that up in that way. But he tried to, to play it down a bit. And mm. He said that sometimes. He also said, the reason I, I carried on was because the, the next item wasn't ready yet, which is just, if you watch it, it just doesn't make any sense because the interview goes on for a, some time after that. The truth, as he put it to me, was that I was just sick of the bullshit. That's what he said to me. So it, it felt to me in a way that he was sick of being asked the question about it. And then when he told me wearily, he said, I was just sick of the bullshit. Mm. He was sick of this unwritten rule that after three times or so, which is Andrew Neil's rule, when they don't answer you the question, on. you move on. And I think that was, again, a moment where it revealed the process. A lot about Howard, didn't it? I mean, it really damaged Howard it badly. Did. Yeah, and I think Jeremy asserts that did for him. And I think that's what Howard probably thought. So he yeah. wasn't happy about it. But, you know, the thing is, that rule, that unwritten rule isn't understood by the public. Mm. So Jeremy decides to break the rule. Rule breaking is fun to watch. And Paxman famous didn't have many friends who are politicians, he mm. says so in your book. But Brian Walden, a famous inquisitor from the 80s, yeah, really sort of set the benchmark for a lot of these interviews. But actually, he was quite close to Margaret Thatcher, you found out. My God, it's such an extraordinary story. I mean, when I wrote the book, one of the reasons I, the, the contrast in my head when I started this book was Boris Johnson hiding in a fridge, mm-hmm. um, hiding from GMB back in 2019. From Piers Morgan's into questions. Yes, and, just, and Susanna Reid, who yeah. actually a better interview, by the way. And set against Margaret Thatcher, 1989. She just lost her chancellor, Nigel Lawson, a colossal figure in her government. She's in her biggest political crisis to date. And she goes onto the television for 46 minutes to be interviewed by Brian Walden. Now, just a quick history of this, because it is fascinating. Brian Walden was a Labour MP. He was a grammar school boy who went to Oxford. So very similar to Mrs. Thatcher in that respect. He wasn't really a socialist. He says he kind of got it in his mother's milk. He never really believed it. He was more of a meritocrat. And by the time the 70s, early 70s came around, and Mrs. Thatcher in the mid-70s became leader of the Tory party, Walden was kind of Thatcher curious, you know, wondering maybe this was where he was ideologically going to find a home. But before anything could happen with that, like crossing the floor or anything, he was suddenly whisked out of this world of politics 
in terms of Parliament and became a presenter on Weekend World on, on ITV. His first ever guest was Mrs. Thatcher in September 77. They developed this on-screen relationship and conversational style. That was I've watched them back. They are revealing. They, they show her in real time thinking about how far she can go about union power, which she was very sympathetic about. There was too much union power. She just sketches forward onto Thatcherism. And then when she becomes prime minister, this continues. Victorian values was penned, was said by him to her in an interview and she went ran with it. She told him that we only remember the Good Samaritan because he had money. So they had this relationship that was very close. So close. This is extraordinary. In 1983, the general election, okay, this is the second term. Mrs. Thatcher seeking a second term. Older listeners may remember a, a very famous rally that took place with the young conservatives in that campaign, which featured Kenny Everett, the mm. comedian, the late comedian. With his big hands. Big hands, like an evangelical. He said, let's bomb Russia. <laughs> let's, uh, let's kick Michael Foot's stick away. Yes. And, and all this stuff was an outrage about it. Faux outrage, really, because it was kind of funny. But Mrs. Thatcher, who that morning had been interviewed by Brian Warden on ITV, went to that rally and was pumped up. They were crying, Maggie, Maggie, Maggie. She was really into it. Um, and she arrived very late at night to record her final election broadcast to the country to say, give me a second term, carry on, let's finish the job we started. And the script that she had did not fit her mood that night. Mm. What she wanted was a different script. And Ian Gow, who, was, who worked very closely with her, I think it was a private uh, secretary. Yes. Yeah. yeah, He was you know, looking around to find who's the best person to write this script. And extraordinarily, he decided to ask Brian Walden which is a very interesting thing to have done because this is a man who was an impartial TV presenter, interviewer, grand inquisitor. That's extraordinary, he even asked. Even more extraordinary, he said yes. Yes. And he got out of his bed by these accounts and he came to this place (laughs) and he wrote this script. And a few days later, Mrs. Thatcher was re-elected. Wow. Extraordinary. And and their relationship then continued on air while she was prime minister and he was the interviewer. Now – to finish the end of that story, extraordinarily in 1989, the moment comes when Nigel Lawson has resigned and Mrs. Thatcher has this interview for 46 minutes with Brian Warden. There was a palpable sense in the media at that time, particularly on the left, and the Independent wrote a big piece about this on the, on the day of this interview, that this man was going to not deliver the reckoning that they thought she deserved, given where she was, because he was a fellow traveller. So for him, there's a great deal of pressure to demonstrate mm. that he was the journalist first mm. and that he would do what needed to be done. And if you remember, I don't know if you can remember the interview, it is a pretty... Was it's it brutal, a, wasn't it? It's pretty brutal. He presses her. She's not very good at answering or not answering the question about why Lawson had gone. She can't answer it properly. Yeah. And then he says that people think you're off your trolley. You don't really call the Prime Minister of the, of the no. nation mad on television, which is kind of the implication of that. But this was the kind of thing people said mm. after we have become a grandmother. They People thought she sort of slightly lost it, which is unfair, you know, I think in retrospect. So this played out in the way it did. And within weeks, there was the first leadership challenge against yes. her from Sir Anthony Mayer. So he created her and, and ended her slightly. Well, yeah. And, and you know what? They didn't speak again. That was the last time they spoke to each other. Mm. That was the end of that very close relationship. And do you think they went to Walden because they thought, here's someone who can get the best out of her? I think and, that was, and, and he yeah. then allowed himself to be brought into that. But perhaps he was putting down a down payment on future interviews, possibly. I mean, well, yeah, possibly. But I also think that, and this is really, really important, is that getting the best out of it is a good thing. We learned a lot about Mrs. Thatcher. And that's what interviews should be about, isn't it? It's one of the things. It depends what the situation is, right? And also, it takes two to tango. But Mrs. Thatcher and Brian Walden, they certainly tangoed. You know, they, they talked about things and we learned things. But when it came to a prosecutorial moment, which is a different kind of thing, he delivered that too. So he was redeemed by what happened subsequently. That's an amazing story put to paid, paid to the notion that, that current political editors and reporters are more biased. 
In a way, it does, doesn't it? It tells you that that simpatico relationship between politicians and the media is, is as old as the hills, you know, because these are people who, are, in a way, they're similar. They're interested in ideas. They're interested in politics. They want to engage with each other. And often, as in the case here, we're seeing people, well, we see it now all the time with MPs having their own shows, which is another conversation. But Brian was an ex-MP. He was from that political world. I mean, so Robin Day tried to become an MP. He was mm. imbued in that with that. Paxman didn't. Paxman was kind of didn't really want to be involved in that. But there was always that kind of danger and I think he has to be alive to that danger for sure. What's your tips for getting the best out of a good interviewer? Are you not to do this one like I've done it? But- <laughs> I think it depends really what you're trying to get out of it. If, if, if getting the best out of a politician can mean allowing them to kind of speak and say what they think, or it can mean kind of revealing that they don't know what they're talking about. So let me say a few things. First of all, give them time. I think one of the problems we've got in our political culture here, and it wasn't there when Brian Walden and Margaret Thatcher were talking, is we just don't give it time. We try and hurry through it in five or six minutes, and it's just you're not going to get results. Listen to what they say, because just like politicians can become locked into a kind of set of lines, sometimes interviewers can do the same thing. They're so bound up in their own sort of questions and clever thoughts mm. that they're not interested in what they It's not about say. them, is it? It's about the listener no. and what the person's saying. It's about the public. And Robin Day and Jerry Paxman always felt that very keenly. Make a plan, okay? What you don't do is walk in without a plan with just a sort of idea in your head and you just go and wing it. That's never, never the best way in any walk of life. You've got to prepare to succeed. Have a theme, okay? Because there's five stories in the newspapers this morning. I'm just going to run through them all and try and get answers and news, and news lines from the politicians. I used to have an approach, which was, what is the truth? So when you come up to an interview, you're trying to understand in, in a nuanced way, not in a kind of silly, simplistic way. What is the situation they're in? What are they looking at? What are they weighing up, for example? And do the big stuff with them. Don't get lost in triviality. Try and draw them into... Big questions, big themes, what they really believe. So those are my tips about, I think, getting the best out of politicians. And the tips for politicians to make it work for them. And that's also, mm-hmm. you mentioned there, what do they want? What are their focus? Well, this is, they've got a lot to learn on this, I think. Um, I think, first of all, listen again. They should be listening to what the question is and trying to think about how the audience hearing that question, what they're going to want to hear, what kind of response Often they, they pivot to their own answer, don't they? As a new Labour issue, you identify in the book. Yeah, it's true. Although actually it's interesting. So Edward Heath talked about being on message back in the 60s. He was talking about this. So it's, it's, a lot, it's, it's been there from the very start. Answer the question, please. Mm. Okay. It's the big one. Just try and answer the question. And if you're not going to answer the next one, if you're not going to answer the question, at least try and do so with a bit of kind of... Wiz- say, I don't know. Is that allowed? Oh, well, that would be great. I mean, the bottom line... Is it this, great though? Or you look stupid saying, I don't know. Look, I may, you know, you may say I'm a dreamer, but we've got to get away from this, which is this kind of, you can't speak. You can't say, I don't know. Imagine if a politician came forward who could be authentic and who could say that and who could somehow get out of this bind we're in where people talking to each other we're not listening or not hearing. Mm. That's what we need to have. Well, on that note, Rob Burley, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. And we'll put a link to your new book, Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me, in the show notes for our episode. Thank you. Thank you. Rob Burley there. And do let me know what you think about the role of a political interviewer. All nice things about me, of course. Please email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet me. You can find me at Chopper's Podcast. Well, that's all for this week's Chopper's Politics listeners. Thank you to my guests, James Cracknell, Lucy Fraser MP and, of course, Rob Burley. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. And, of course, for more insights into the wonderful world of Westminster, please do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. It'll arrive straight into your email inbox every weekday and the link for that will be in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to read my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out every Friday at 7pm online and in Saturday's Daily Telegraph. And as always, if you can, please do buy a copy of our newspaper. I know you won't regret it. 
Until next time, though, cheerio! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.